to me, it's the ability to see outcomes for your effort. In, in TR, I can do something in the morning which fundamentally changes something in the afternoon. Um, and it has an impact, it has an outcome, and it's normally a human one, and it's normally always positive. Welcome to the Watchword podcast, exploring life's big decisions and the factors behind them. In this episode, I talk to Richard Sharp. Richard is a former Royal Marine officer who had to leave the military after getting injured on operations. He then went on to work for an investment bank before realising that it wasn't for him. Since then, he's worked for Help for Heroes and is now the CEO of Team Rubicon UK, the charity that has led the way in supporting the NHS, emergency services and local authorities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Richard's reflections on purpose, the world of work and how we can contribute more are enlightening and I hope you enjoy it. If you're interested in volunteering to support Team Rubicon, please visit teamrubiconuk.org. Also, you can find the Watchword podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. How are things going with you? Yeah, really great. Uh, really great to be here. Thanks. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty busy time here in, in the COVID grip Britain obviously Team Rubicon UK delivering a lot in that crisis right now. So uh, it's nice actually to take a bit of a break and come and chat to you about, uh, about something else for a little while. Yeah, I mean, it's, what's going on with Team Rubicon in the UK is pretty extraordinary. This, this crisis is, um, in some ways, you, you are running the, the perfect organisation to respond, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think we were ever expecting to do this work. I don't think the country was ever expecting a problem quite like this, you know, Team Rubicon UK is, is built really for international disasters. You know, we take military veterans and we train them as humanitarians looking to get life-saving aid into the unreachable corners of disaster. That's what we do, we try and reach the unreachable. Um, but when we saw this crisis unfolding, working with government and doing mission analysis for them, it was clear there was a, there was a need for a quick pivot into this problem because we could provide an immense amount of horsepower uh, to solve a strategic problem, but also plug critical infrastructure gaps around the UK with, with teams of veterans um, bolstering our grey shirts. So it's been, a, it's been a pretty frenetic seven weeks, really. Yeah. And to, if someone is unaware of Team Rubicon, um, I guess as a whole, and then also Team Rubicon UK, how would you summarise the, the structure of the organisation? I mean, everybody was unaware of Team Rubicon until about seven weeks ago. No one knew who we were in the UK. <laughs> Uh, and, and now people seem to know who we are because of what's going on. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a UK charity. It was started in the States 10 years ago um, by a couple of US Marines, uh, and we're, we're the first international offshoot. And it, it's a UK charity built around repurposing veterans, so taking all that skill, all that experience that we learn in the military, um, and, and putting it to use again on the outside as a civvy. Because you know, what I found when I left the Corps, I was a Royal Marine, when I left the Corps, it was fine for a bit, then I started to, to miss the, the feeling of belonging to something important, something that mattered and a mission. Um, and and this, this place is built around that. So it's a charity that provides relief in disasters, but of course it actually provides community and a sense of purpose to, to those of us that have taken our uniform off, but still have a desire to serve in that way. I think service is in our DNA. It's not necessarily a choice that we we make. It's just it's how we're built. We're, we're built to belong to teams and, and deliver outcomes that way. Mm. 
and you've and you've inflated your your workforce at, at the moment obviously it's at, so it's largely volunteer um dominated what's the sort of structure in terms of permanent staff versus volunteers at the moment yeah so when we keep the permanent staff um tight and lean here there's, there's 11 full-time staff but we're just about to hire a couple more because the thing is just yeah take off like a scolded cat at the moment we've got to we've got to put some full-time resource in there so we're going to start hiring a couple of positions before the crisis we had a thousand trained uh, we call them gray shirts a thousand trained gray shirts and um, to various different levels from domestic to international to responder and then we had about three thousand people just on the books that sort of signed up and not quite come forward um, it was clear we needed more people for this crisis so we did a did a quick recruitment call for the new veterans to come forward and support us. Mm. We've got five and a half thousand new signups in the last three weeks, wow. uh, which has been amazing. And actually, I, I was worried, you know, take quite a lot of risk. I love the veteran community, but of course, we all know that just being a veteran doesn't mean you're automatically a hoofing person. You know, there was, was bad people in the military as well. And I, I was concerned, you know, we might get a bit of a reputational risk, someone might do something stupid, you know, there's a variety of things you don't know people and you're putting them on task yeah and i've just been blown away by the just awesome awesome people that are coming forward from every different branch of the military from every different rank and background and just their their willingness to walk towards a problem and and their selflessness and the way they've been acting has been incredible and yeah we've got we've got people working in mortuaries as volunteers that we didn't know seven weeks ago and it's been a genuinely humbling experience yeah well, I mean, it's, I guess crisis sometimes brings out the best in, in people, doesn't it? Um, and I mean, you mentioned, mentioned working in mortuaries there. So in terms of, you've, you've obviously got a lot of volunteers and they're, and they're sort of spread out across the country. What, what activities are they getting involved with? Well, I mean, the primary thing was to, to build a common operating picture of the crisis. So we deployed uh, liaison officers into the, all of the regions mirroring the Standing Joint Command, that's the MOD's contingent force. Mm. So we mirrored their lay down with our regional liaison officers to build um, an information picture, you know, G2 in our old language, and so we can start understanding the problem. So, and we're still doing that, providing that strategic coordination for the voluntary sector. But then we were deploying our response teams into critical gaps. That's looked like we've done a lot of mortuaries, you know, we've handled um, between 10 and 15% of all the fatalities. We've um, been putting NHS supermarkets into hospitals so that doctors and nurses can get food on the way out. We've been supporting food banks. We've been supporting logistics tasks, PPE tasks, uh, and also just some nice community work, uh, checking in on vulnerable people either by phone or by knocking on the door to make sure that people aren't getting forgotten in these communities. We're working with local authorities and other smaller voluntary organizations to, to reach into those communities, which is really nice. Um, and we're just, you know, one of the things that's touched me most is the RBLI village in Kent was um, really struggling because lots of their staff had to self-isolate and they'd, they had some people, some of their residents, unfortunately, pass away. We've been able to put a team in there to prop, to prop that care home up, which when I went to visit last week was maybe one of the most moving things I've, uh, I've ever done in TB Rubicon, actually. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds... It sounds incredible. It sounds impressive um, and testament to you and your team and everyone who's put their hand up to volunteer. It's, it's, it's quite an effort. Um, and in, in terms of your own, your own journey, how long have you been at, at, at Team Rubicon? 
So, um, Tibu Bukhan, or you know, TR to her friends, as we call her. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been at TR for, for two and a half years-ish. Yeah, November 2017, I came here, um, and you know, she was a, a, a small organisation that hadn't quite found its feet. It didn't really know what it was going to be here in the UK. It was, it was trying to replicate the American model, which was massive and domestically focused, and it was sort of stumbling a bit here. So... Since, since coming in, I've been doing the work that I described earlier, positioning it as this sort of expeditionary mm. international force. Um, it's been an amazing two and a half years, probably the, probably the best two and a half years of my whole life, actually. Wow. Wow. That's, well, that's, that's awesome. And um, I mean, like you say, if you, you, your aim is to serve um, and, and you have that urge, and that's, it's interesting to sort of explore that and discuss it because um, as we touched on when we were, um, talking prior to the podcast, the the reason that we're doing this is to is to assist people in planning their own path through life by listening to the experiences of others. Um, and clearly, you've been you've been on quite a journey. You spent um, I think it was eight years in the Royal Marines. Yeah, I, I joined the Corps in, in two thousand and five, um, and I mean I had a fantastic time in the Corps. You know, did my did a couple of tours of Afghan, did some fun stuff back here in exercise. Um, and dearly, dearly love the Royal Marines because mm-hmm. um, it, it set me up for for my life. I, I I came from a small town in Cornwall, Penzance. I didn't really understand much about the outside world. It was quite a sheltered upbringing, um, and so the core not only did it you know fulfil a childhood dream. You know, I'd always wanted to be a Marine since I was eight or nine. Um, it also it just set me up to be able to to go and live this life that I'm living now. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you're from Penzance, actually. My, half my family's from Helston, which isn't, which isn't too far away. Oh, no way. It was just up the road. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so th- that's great. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we, can, that we can talk about with regards to the military. And obviously, we've, we've done quite a few. Well, I say quite a few. We've done 13 or so episodes now. Um, and it's, there's quite a heavy military slant. But one of the sort of most... You've made a couple of really interesting transitions um and and the first was was leaving was leaving the military and then going into the the professional world the civilian world um how did you find that process and what was your sort of approach to it yeah so i mean i think to understand that the the important thing is i joined the royal marines at 22 um but without a degree and actually without any real a levels to speak of i had just enough to qualify as an officer and there was this gap Mm. in the royal marines recruitment for officers completely by choice I'm a bit of a jammy git like this whereas where I could promote at the same rate as my peers without a degree oh yeah um, but I joined the core to stay in the core forever I, I didn't have a plan beyond that all I'd ever wanted to be was a bootneck um, and then I got a bit banged up in Afghan in, in 2011 so I got medically discharged in, in 2012 and then all of a sudden Civvy Street is racing towards me and my uh, my ex-wife wanted to go back to London where she was from so I was like, okay, let's go to London. That's cool. I had a load of mates there. I spent quite a bit of time in Richmond with my mates when I've been serving. Um, and so I was like, right, yeah, I'll go to London. And I knew nothing about the private sector, commercial. You know, I, I'd gone from being a rugby player in Cornwall mm. to being a Marine to now Civvy Street racing towards me. And it was just a question of just getting after it on the networking trail because my, my ex-wife introduced me to her old boss who was a banker and I turned up in a suit 
to see him and I had my Solomon running day sack on and I walked in he was like first thing you got to ditch that backpack and, get <laughs> and then uh, he was like so what do you want to do so well, I want to work in the city and he said okay what do you mean by the city and, and this is Jen and I was like well you know London he was like right well that's not the city the city means the financial district and yada yada so that's how green I was and that's a 100% Jen story and, but then I learned some from his conversation. He introduced me to two people, he introduced me to two people each, and I just relentlessly beat the networking trail, taking information from all these people. He kept introducing me to more people, and over the course of around six months, I started to sound more credible. So I'd go back from these meetings, mm. massive imposter syndrome, do the research on what they just told me. And you know, I just started to sound more credible. And you end up getting in front of more and more important people who start to make decisions, and eventually, you end up in front of somebody that's going to take a punt on you because you've got quite a cool background and you sound almost credible in the, in the new world. Mm. And that's really how I, I sort of just blagged it basically and got into to Deutsche Bank. Yeah. And um, I mean, well, you'll have learned, you'll have learned a lot of skills in the military that would have, that would have helped you in terms of preparing for that, uh, I guess in, you know, planning and communicating and all that kind of stuff and learning new, learning new skills. Um, and then, how, how did you find, how did you find your new environment, the new culture? Yeah, I mean, you, you saw your point around the military gave me the skills and so it, sure, undoubtedly, the, 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 the military gave me confidence and it gave me resilience. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I was probably quite good at communicating with people before, but it, it, it just hones it in a different way. But I think the biggest thing about that networking trail was just resilience um, and just tenacity and, and it was like doing a 30 mile on the commander test. It sucks and it's painful, but you've just got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I think that was the biggest thing the military gave me in that transition. Um, and then, you know, then you end up in Deutsche Bank um, with barely any A-levels, no degree, um, and, you know, a few years of combat service under your belt. And it's just, you're back at the beginning and you've got to kick really hard. Uh, what, I, what I saw for a little while in, this, in that period after Afghan was, uh, so a small cohort of the veteran community that thought they'd done their bit and they were going to die now on it forever. And actually, once we come outside, we've got to kick hard and we've got to push on because the world doesn't owe us anything. Mm. Um, and so hitting the bank, you know, I had to work really hard to start understanding what people were saying, what we were doing, because I knew nothing about this world. Um, and it, it was great for a while. It was exciting to be in the city and be in a suit. But it soon... I started to understand more and more about myself and what drives me. Um, quite reflective now, and I definitely wasn't when I was a younger man, but you know, it became apparent I wasn't driven by the money and the status that banking could give me. I was driven by what I do, not what I get. And the culture of the place was starting to, to chip away at me. You know, there wasn't any real loyalty or, or friendship in, it, in the place. I come to the Royal Marines where people would sacrifice themselves for each other to a place where people would push you under the bus for a bonus. And that was, that was grating away at me after a while. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, the, in terms of resilience, that's um, a kind of reoccurring theme as well with, with regards to the people that we've, we've spoken to. Um, it's it's the, the ability to just persevere and hang in there, hang tough and, and keep pushing through is one of the most valuable skills or assets that someone can, acquire um 
and when you were when you were there and you sort of realized that you know there's maybe a difference in values between the, the culture of, of that organization and um and and your own what what did you think in terms of your options like i um yeah <laughs> i've been on a few podcasts where people ask me for my my approach and and what recommendations I'd make to other people leaving the military. Like, I've never had a plan. I'm, I'm probably a really bad person to give advice because I just, I get up every day and I work, I work really hard and I, because I want to be good at whatever it is I'm doing. But I've never really got a plan much more than the week ahead of me. Um, and it was the same in the bank. I was working really hard and I, there was another bootneck on the floor and he was actually my best mate. Um, and we happened to go through training together and we ended up on the floor plate together at Deutsche Bank. And we'd huddle up each day like and just discuss work and and actually have a bit of a drip together um but we were working very hard and we were taking a lot of responsibility because the cultural difference was most of the people around us were trying to shy away from responsibility because they didn't want to get blamed for anything because it was such a sharp pit whereas we were like well no like, we'll just get it done so we would take responsibility take accountability and then we'd deliver and um, so we we actually got promoted very quickly there um, and you know, the, the banking sector was recovering from the 2008 crisis. There was still a very big hangover. Regulation was coming in um, thick and fast. And, and we were working through that quite well because, you know, we were just solving problems on behalf of the bank and actually started getting exposure up to Exco level. Um, but I was, I was clear in my mind after two and a half years, three years, that I, I definitely wanted out of um, the financial sector. And actually, I wanted out of London because being a country boy and definitely being one for the sea London just didn't suit me you know I, I, I'm happiest in the great outdoors um, be that the mountains or the sea so I was starting to think that I wanted out um, and like I said earlier I could be a bit of a jammy git a, help, uh, a headhunter had approached me um, about eight months previous for a job at Help for Heroes which my my wife didn't want us to move out of London by the time they came back, my wife and I were starting to, to separate and, um, and I just, I, I didn't want to snap their arm off, but it was a great opportunity to go and be the executive officer to Brim Parry, who founded Help the Heroes, move out of London and, and get down to the New Forest. Um, and actually I moved to Poole in the end, but, and that's what happened. So I made, I made the jump then, um, again, another massive leap. I didn't really know anything about charities. I didn't really know much about Help the Heroes at the time. I think I was actually, um, in the anti-Help for Heroes camp, as there was a lot of people serving at the time were. Um, but I just saw it as a great opportunity to, to get out of London and start doing something good for a community that I cared you know, deeply about. Mm. Well, I think it's, it's going to be reassuring for a lot of people that you didn't necessarily or don't necessarily have a plan or make a plan because lo lots of people don't have one. So um, I think if you... I mean, again, another another episode that we've had with a guy who left the military and went on to work for Google and other organisations like that. Basically, said, you know, take it take it one job at a time, um, especially with the speed of doing that now. You know, I, I love what I'm doing. It's like the best thing I've ever done, um, and I have huge plans for this place. You know, I, I have this um, strategic direction for this place, and we've got a clear vision, and we know what we're working towards. I don't know what I'm going to do after this. You know, it's uh, I'm good at planning for for my work, but not for myself. I just take it one job at a time, keep working hard, and you know, if if you're a good person and you're putting good out there, I think good comes. You know, I just uh, think that's the way it happens. Yeah, absolutely.
And so the transition to Help for Heroes, that obviously, that obviously must have been, well, I'm assuming it's an organization that, that suited you quite well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what to expect at the time. It's 2014 when I, uh, when I went there. So it had been through the real boom years and, um, and it, you know, it was just starting to dip um, into a more steady state as the, as the conflicts were dying down a bit. Um, but it had been through this period of hyper growth and it, it didn't necessarily have the infrastructure behind it. So I spent three years trying to sort of shore the organization up and put the infrastructure in behind it. Um, which wasn't without its stresses. Um, and it was going through a lot of periods of transition. There was teams that had huge amounts of autonomy and that was starting to get wrestled back from them. So there was a fair bit of friction. Uh, and also there was two really big um, attacks by the press at that time, by the Times, the Daily Mail, um, a big investigation by the Charity Commission, which I was um, riding shotgun on dealing with. So I never really got to to touch the beneficiaries in the way I, I would have wanted. And that's a bad choice of words, actually. I mean, what I mean is by you know, interacting with the beneficiaries and being directly one of the support givers. I was always in the back office as the ops director, dealing with policy and process and the press and, and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know if I gleaned the full rewardingness of it as I would have done, but you know, it was a very different environment to the bank. I was hugely happy to be there um, during that period of time. Um, and, and also, you know, from a selfish point of view, it started to afford me the life I wanted. You know, I got to live in pool and drive to work. I wasn't on the tube. I didn't have to earn all this crazy money to try and live in London. So I started to get the balance of life that I was after, um, which does come into my decision-making now. I, I know I, I'm not a city dweller and I know I'm not a, a big corporate beast that wants to work for the man. And Help the Heroes was a big part of that learning for me. I prefer being a big cog in a small thing where I can affect change as opposed to being a small cog, you know, anonymous in a massive machine. Yeah, that's, um, that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, I myself certainly can. I think um, in, even in the military, there is, whilst you are a small cog in a big machine, it doesn't, it doesn't feel quite the same. I don't know what you, what your reflections are. I think you do have a degree of autonomy and sort of, the, I guess because the team is a bit tighter, it doesn't feel like you're in such a huge, you know, meaningless machine, I guess. Yeah, because you're within a team of teams, aren't you? You know, you're a, you're a big part of the team that you belong to. Um, and the whole thing about mission command and, and trust and empowerment is brilliant in the military. Um, so, yes, in the grand scheme of the UK military, you're just one soldier. Um, but actually, in your troop or your section or your fire team, you're a massive piece of that. And you have your own character and identity within it. Um, so I don't think you feel lost in the same way because you can you do get all that autonomy and responsibility in the context of your position. Yeah. Yeah. One of the realisations that I, I had myself was that I, I wanted to have... Um, some degree of input onto the like strategic direction of the organization, which, which only really comes when you have a small business or, or maybe medium size or certainly, you know, in your case, a, a charity. Um, and I think it's an interesting point to reflect on sort of, I mean, I've got less experience than you um, in terms of, in terms of uh, years and so on. So I guess I'm slightly behind in terms of the journey, but I kind of came to the same, conclusion like it's too 
it's too much fun to be able to have a bigger impact on whatever your whatever your area of operations is whether in the military or in the civilian world so um it's something that's worth reflecting on for for those who might be transitioning or whether out of the military or looking at a different career it's like how much how much of um how much risk are you willing to tolerate and how much of uh, input do you want to have on the strategic direction i guess if that makes sense and like, I mean, you saying you haven't got as many years as me, that just means you're learning quicker than I am because um, it, it took me longer to realise. Um, it is an important reflection point. And it's, it, it's great that I understand that about myself now and you clearly understand that yourself because I will make better decisions for myself as I go forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I will never take, you know, if Deloitte offered me a job, I'm never going to take it um, because I actually know it won't fulfil me and it won't make me happy. Um, it, to me, it's the ability to see outcomes for your effort. In, in TR, I can do something in the morning which fundamentally changes something in the afternoon. Mm. Um, and it has an impact, it has an outcome, and it's normally a human one, and it's normally always positive. Mm. Uh, whereas when you're part of the big machine, I mean, I worked really hard in the bank for, for over three years. I don't think I ever achieved anything because nothing gets finished. Everything is just it's just a treadmill uh, and I know that doesn't fulfill me I need to see an output for my energy and you made a good point around that sometimes comes at more risk and it and it does because either you've got to start something for yourself or you go into a smaller organization and then the risk is you're very very accountable and <laughs> um, so you've got to you've got to deliver because if I don't do my work here it doesn't get done I can't just blame on someone else so you that's the thing about anonymity in a big place. You can get away with not doing very much. When you work at something smaller, you know, you've got to step up to the plate every day and, and deliver, um, which I love. I love that level of accountability. And, and the pressure that comes with that is, is what makes me thrive. And I really believe in what I'm doing. That's the, that's the biggest thing. And I think everyone, is, is, everyone would love to do something they believe in, something they love. And, you know, not everyone can, you know, so it's not like uh, that's always easy, but it's something we can strive for and it's something we can plan towards because life is really short, isn't it? So we've got to try and enjoy five-sevenths of it, which is our working week. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess it, it reminds me of this, what you said at the beginning in terms of, in terms of service. So an important consideration for people that I've spoken to you know, quite a few people, I guess, both both on the podcast and just in general about, about what it is that they what it is that they want and what they want to achieve, and quite often people uh, come back in a, in a through various different routes to I want to help people, and I think that quite a large percentage of the population or people in general have this have this desire to help people because I think we're kind of programmed that way to, to some degree, and certainly those people in the, in the military. Uh, community and um, that's certainly the case and and, and lots of other sectors too so I I just I can imagine that getting into the position that you are now your organization exists 100% to help people which is a pretty a pretty powerful thing because most other organizations exist to make money which is neither a good nor a bad thing in itself it depends it depends on other factors but but yeah, I, I just think this is one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you and um, excited to you know further distribute the the good work that um, Team Rubicon UK does is because it's it's kind of presenting this and saying oh 
by the way, in, in addition to all of the other options that we've explored so far, this is another one. And I think going down the route of working for charities that exist to help people must be incredibly rewarding. It is. Uh, I'm incredibly lucky and to get out of bed every day and, and I just can't wait to get to go and do my job because I'm surrounded by a team who I love being around. They're my friends, you know, they're not, they're not just my colleagues. I, I, I really love being here with them and I love the volunteers that come and do the work that we do. Mm. Um, but of course, that, that's sometimes, you know, <laughs> that's not what everyone can achieve. I know I'm very lucky in that. What's interesting for, you know, the people listening to this podcast is, um, Team Rubicon is predominantly for, for military veterans and emergency services people who are now doing another job. So you can come and do this as, a, as an aside to your job. It's a bit like being in the RNLI. You know, you're out there doing your normal job on a bleeper. So you can get that level of fulfillment um, as an aside to your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, I, when um, I was doing one of these with a guy called Dean Stock last week, and, and he said when he was leaving, Special forces, they get all these like mega successful people come in and, and brief them about opportunities as a civvy. And um, of course, it's not always that easy. Um, you often got to go through a lot of failure to get to the end state. And I am very lucky to be doing what I'm doing right now. It has not been without massive setbacks. <laughs> um, and I've failed more than I've succeeded. Um, and that's okay because you know you end up if you if you stay resilient you know back to that thing like when I was networking and you keep pushing and you stay the course and um, it does come right but it uh, it's not always a quick fix. Mm. Yeah, well, it's quite refreshing for for you to you know to to reflect on your your time at the bank and just be you know completely open and honest about it because but but equally it also highlights to people that um, perhaps that that time. It wasn't time wasted. It was pretty well spent. It meant that you, your credibility was considerable. You, I'm sure you'll have learned an awful lot and it would have stood you in good stead to, to progress up um, onto, onto the kind of roles you're doing now. Yeah, like it, it's not something I, I loved. And you know, what we do in the, what we did in the financial services, I'm not proud of it. I'm never going to get the Deutsche Bank tattooed on my shoulder next to my, uh, my Royal Marines tattoo. Mm. But it did transition me. It made me a full-blown civilian. Um, and at the time, lots of people were saying, you know, you need to get a big kite mark on your CV, you know, a big corporate stamp to show you transition. Mm-hmm. And when I left the bank, I was like, well, that was, a, that was a load of nonsense. Actually, I could have done it another way. I look back, there is something in it. Um, because TR now, this thing that I love and that drives me so much, brings together three parts of my background. You know, it brings together the military, the bank, and the charity sector. And I, I get to funnel all that experience into something here. And having been at the bank did give me um, a big sudden grounding in, in the commercial sector. But it, it also showed, you know, when I, when I applied for these jobs now, I was, like you said, credible in that environment. So mm. I'm not saying to everyone listen to this, go and try and get a job in a bank. I think there's better ways to do it for, for people leaving the military. There is some similarities in most of us. We're all different, but there is some similarities. There's other ways to go and get that sort of commercial experience. Um, and of course, there's lots of people that leave the military, join the bank, um, love it, stay forever, and earn a buttload of cash. Uh, and I'm never going to be rich, um, but I know I'm doing something that makes me fulfilled. Um, and I think fulfillment is important. You know, we're all chasing happiness, but happiness, I think, is a 
you know, we're not meant to be happy all the time, but we should be fulfilled and feel purposeful. Yes. Quite profound, quite a profound statement. Definitely. Um, the, the struggle, struggle is, is required. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it, it, the whole thing about chasing money is, uh, is a tricky one. And I guess each individual person has to work out what, what value they, they place on that relative to, to other things in terms of, you know, like the things that you've talked about being outdoors, lifestyle, time with your family, um, etc. But it's, um, it's something that you learn over time, isn't it? I guess. It is. And you know, if I was, I come about how old was when I left the core, I was about 30, 31. Now, if I was 30, 31 again, and someone said, nah, you don't need the money, just go and do this. You know, I, I probably wouldn't listen. I'd probably still go and make my own mistakes. Mm. You know, we all learn that way mm. and that's fine. I think the, the message I, you know, when I speak to people on the networking trail, when I'm helping people leave is to stay reflective so that they notice when they're not in the right place for themselves. Because sometimes we've got to go make our own mistakes, but keep, keep assessing where you're at, um, what it is that's driving you, um, so that you don't just end up in something you hate for the rest of your life because you weren't looking left and right. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's kind of one of the reasons that's led to, the, um, to this podcast starting, which started in, it started in March, the first episode in March, and then the subsequent 12 or 13 took place in April. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, we're, you know, going at high speed, but but the aim the aim is to is to help people, and it sort of come from that that reflection um, that you talked about myself. It's like, well, what what can be done to produce content that will assist people in um, making their own decisions and planning their path um, and their path through life. So it's it's awesome, really, to hear to hear yours, particularly when you've now ended up at almost like the the epicenter of of response to to a national crisis really um and it's it just sounds like a fascinating organization in terms of rep replicating what you have with regards to local government and uh, and integrating and kind of replicating the military model but using using um volunteers which it, it i guess you must be a bit more adaptive than than the military as a whole in the current climate well, yeah, we're not governed by the same set of rules. We're entirely independent. We can be very agile. Um, and the power of us is that we can work with them very closely, but we can also do things that they potentially aren't allowed to do for political reasons. Um, so we have, we have their level of, of skill. We don't have their horsepower, of course, and their funding and their infrastructure. We have the same kind of people, um, but we have more freedom. So when we work with them here in the UK, we can do something quite, quite special. And of course, we bridge the gap between the military, the charity sector, and UK resilience. So we sit in a, quite a unique place now in the UK, and it'd be interesting to see what happens as we come through the backside of this crisis and, uh, and, and what our position in resilience looks like after that. Definitely. And what is your, what is your vision for the organisation? What, what do you want it to look like in, in the future? Um, I mean, that's changed significantly in the last seven weeks. Yeah. Um, we, we just spent the last two and a half years building this really punchy international offer, getting teams into these unreachable corners. And we we're just getting noticed by the UN. And we were looking to grow that and really deepen the hold in the, in the humanitarian architecture so that wherever there was a disaster anywhere in the world, there would always be a Team Rubicon UK team, like in early and out into the Oodaloo. And yeah. um, now we still want to do that. We absolutely want to make sure we do that. But um, this crisis here is going to go on a long time. In, in various forms um, 
So I, I want to make the most of this, this groundswell of volunteers we've just had, recruit them and train them in, to then make sure that we have a, a constant presence in UK resilience going forward. Um, so, you know, a team Rubicon representative at each resilience forum, so that when future things happen in the UK, you know, flooding, sort of, um, an event such as Grenfell, which obviously we hope never happens again, if there was something like that, I want to see a team Rubicon team available to deploy um, and, and add the value that we're adding right now. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And the local, is it the local resilience forums? That's that's how it's broken down nationally? Yeah, so there's 48 forums across the UK um, and they're normally headed by the police or fire and you know, they have the Red Cross and various other organisations that deliver resilience at the local level. Um, we weren't investing heavily in the domestic mission because there wasn't a great deal of need before this and also we didn't have the, the money to do that. But as, we prob as we'll have proved through this, we had an immense amount of domestic resilience. So we want to then put a, put a person in each forum going forward. Yeah. And do they, do they exist 365 days of the year, those, those fora? Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. And, and they, they sort of, they, I, I don't know how often they meet, but, you know, they, they, they meet reasonably regularly just to check in, you know, review plans, review upcoming um, problems. Because if, if a flood happens in the Somerset levels, it's the local resilience forum that deals with that. Mm. Um, if there was a huge fire like Grenfell, it's the local resilience forum that, that deals with that. So that they are they're permanently um, there. It's just they don't they don't sit. You know, they're not together all the time because they've all got their own jobs. You know, the police, the fire, the Red Cross, etc. So they're doing their normal business. They come together in the time of crisis. But it is a it's an established mechanism. Three six five. Right. Well, I mean, I didn't know that. It's, it's really interesting to think that all these, these different organisations come together, um, uh, you know, grow in terms of there's 48 of them across the country and they meet regularly. And so it's just an interesting insight, an interesting, um, yeah, bit of, bit of information that I wasn't aware of. If, um, say, if we're potentially entering a, a period of um, the, the lockdown restrictions being eased, what what impact is that likely to have on your on your team? Does it will it will it impact them? Do they get mobilised for a period of time, or how, how does it work? Well, it'll be interesting to see how the restrictions get lifted, yeah. because there's still going to be a huge amount of people shielded, and, and there's still going to be a massive, growing, vulnerable cohort, yeah, uh, grown vulnerable through the through the crisis. And um, but it means the volunteer resource will diminish as the need rises. And um, so at the moment, through this part of the crisis, we've been deploying people for two weeks at a time because most of the tasks have needed uh, mission-specific training and orders to go and deliver. So we wanted two weeks. What it will mean as we go through this next period is, as we're doing more logistics and food type crisis work, we won't need that level of training. So we'll probably start asking, we'll recruit more volunteers and we'll let them do sort of two a couple of days here and there. So they'll be able to balance it around work, hopefully. Um, so we're going to have to adjust our deployment model as we come through this next phase. Mm. But I think it's going to be a problem felt across the UK because the, the volunteer framework across the UK tends to be over 70 years old. Of course, they're vulnerable to COVID. Most of our volunteers, um, well, nearly all of them are under 70, younger, more resilient, and some of them you know, quite fresh out of the military. So mm. we'll have a big part to play 
as long as we can get enough that will come forward and balance it around their, their day-to-day jobs. Yeah. So you're very much still, still recruiting, still looking for new volunteers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and normally to, to join Team Rubicon, you go on the website and you sign up to come here for an induction weekend and then more training. But right now on the homepage at teamrubiconuk.org, there is um, there's a big button at the top, you know, it says veteran sign up. So if you, if you have served in the military, you can hit that button. Um, it's a very short sign up and it puts you into a portal that gives you notifications of tasks in your regions that you can just hit and volunteer for um, for a couple of days, a week, whatever. So it, it's pretty quick and simple at the moment. I mean, you deploy with our teams, so you'll be bolstering our, our grey shirt teams. Well, that's a pretty cool system you've you've got set up there. And I guess you must have just you must have do you outsource development to get that to get that sorted. So you've got this sort of regional distribution network ele- electronically. Yeah, I mean, we're still building it at the moment because we didn't have it four weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so we've got some funding from BlackRock um, to help us build it. Um, and we've got, we've got one tech guy here that, like he says, he does everything that, with electricity that runs through it. So he fixes our phone, then he does our tech development. So it, it's mainly him with, um, with a couple of outsourced providers helping him. Um, but we're very much putting the wheels on the car as we're driving down the motorway. Um, and it's, 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 that portal is changing every day at the moment. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds exciting. Um, obviously, it's a very serious situation, but at least you and your team are making a, a meaningful difference. And like you say, you, you can play a part in in the sort of in the in the sort of business continuity of the UK in the future. It sounds like like brilliant. Um, well, that's that's great, Richard. And so, if people if people wanted to find out more about Team Rubicon and, and get involved and sign up, how how would they do that? Just um, just Google Team Rubicon UK, and they can go straight through to the website. Yeah, Google Team Rubicon UK, or the website is um, www.teamrubiconuk.org, um, and then there's loads of stuff up there about past operations, how to sign up. If you're a veteran and want to volunteer in this crisis, just hit that big button at the top. Um, and then you'll, you'll be into that portal and there'll be a chance to join us um, properly for training when, when this all settles down. But yeah, there's loads of information about what we do, how we do it, some cool videos, some cool thoughts. Uh, it's all on our homepage. Okay, brilliant. And, uh, and also you, you're all quite active on social media across all different channels, aren't you? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn are the three main ones we use at the moment. And, uh, and there's, there's stuff coming out there daily at the moment, uh, keeping people up to date with what's happening on the ground, what our volunteers are up to cool that's brilliant well thank you very much for taking the time i really appreciate it and um and all the best for the for the coming weeks and months yeah no mega thanks for having me on a pleasure cheers mate. cheers take care